The touch of the master. Now when I talk about a touch, I'm not talking about you turning to your left, poking your neighbor in the arm. I'm not talking about that kind of a touch, okay? It's not just a physical touch. I'm talking about the kind of touch that has an impact in a person's life. Now if you poke them hard enough, you will have an impact on them and you probably three seconds later will also receive an impact. <laughs> but it's not that kind of impact. We want the kind of touch that has an impact in a life, the type, the type of touch that can literally change a life. Salvation is that kind of touch. When you come to Christ, you received a touch in your life that impacted you, it changed you, it influenced you. Uh, deliverance is that kind of touch. Touch I'm gonna speak about this morning um, that makes a lasting impression is a touch of healing when Christ comes and heals. You remember, you've all heard that poem, I think, called The Touch of the Master's Hand, where the auctioneer is, is holding up an old, dirty, beat-up violin, and he doesn't even think it's worth his time to try and sell. And he says, what am I bid for the old violin? One dollar, two dollars, three dollars, and he's going to sell it for three dollars. And from the back of the room, an old man comes forward, dusts off the violin, tightens the bowstrings, tunes the violin a little bit, begins to play a song, just the most beautiful song anyone's ever heard. He sets the violin down, goes back and sets down his seat. The auctioneer says, now what am I bid? $1,000, $2,000, $3,000. The people in the crowd don't understand what changed the value of the violin. And the poem ends, it says, the master comes and the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of the soul and the change that's wrought by the touch of the master's hand. That's the kind of touch we're talking about this morning, all right? In the natural life, we experience these kind of touches, touches that are impactful. Getting married, it's so much more than a physical touch. It impacts your life. It changes your life. Becoming a parent is a life-changing touch in your life. My wife and I, uh, not quite three weeks ago, became grandparents. That touches your life and changes your life. My daughter said something so profound to us after she became a mother, and she's holding her baby boy. And she said, looking at him makes me want to be a better person. And maybe as parents or grandparents, you've all uh, experienced a similar thought or a similar feeling. That is something that impacts your life. It changes your life, that type of touch that wants you to be a better person. And that's what the touch of Jesus does. It makes an impact on us. It leaves an impression on us. No one walks away from the presence of Jesus having been touched by him without being changed, without being impacted. We need that kind of touch in our life. Our churches need that kind of touch today. Our nation needs that kind of touch, the touch of the master's hand. So let's examine a couple of those impactful touches today. And like I said, I want to I wanna focus on the healing touch of Jesus. And you could think of this story maybe as a miracle within a miracle. Last week, if you were here during communion, we read the passage in Mark where the woman with the hemorrhage was healed. Um, she reached out in faith and was healed because of her faith. I was looking at this passage I noticed how it's sandwiched around the story of Jairus and his daughter, where he had come to Jesus seeking healing touch for his daughter, and then his quest was interrupted by this woman with the hemorrhage, and then after that was dealt with, we finished with the story of Jairus. So let's look at this morning at the actions of these two people. Now most likely, History seems to indicate that this woman had come from another town. They probably didn't live in the same town, the same region. Um, Jairus and this woman 
probably didn't even know that the other one existed. They'd probably never seen each other before. They're most likely from different towns. They probably never saw each other again. Was, wasn't like they exchanged addresses as they were brought together in history here. They exchanged contact information. But for one brief moment in time, they're forever linked together. They're inseparable now because of the touch of the master. So let me read for you to kind of set the stage here. It begins in Mark 5, 21. It says, when Jesus went back across to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. A leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, came and fell down before him, pleading with him to heal his little daughter. She is about to die, he said in desperation. Please come and place your hands on her. Heal her so she can live. Jesus went with him and the crowd thronged behind. And there was a woman in the crowd who had a hemorrhage for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors through the years and had spent everything she had to pay them, but she had gotten no better. In fact, she was worse. She had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched the fringe of his robe. For she thought to herself, if I can just touch his clothing, I will be healed. Immediately the bleeding stopped, and she could feel that she had been healed. Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone out from him, so he turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, All this crowd is pressing around you. How can you ask who touched me? But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and told him what she had done. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. You have been healed. While he was still speaking to her, messengers arrived from Jairus' home with the message, Your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. We'll stop there for a minute. In verse 22, it says that a leader of the local synagogue came to Jesus. Uh, Jairus is leader of the local synagogue. This, he would have been a layman in this time in the synagogue. His responsibilities would have been mostly administrative. Um, he would have been in charge of things like looking after the building. He would have been in charge of things like supervising the worship that went on in the synagogue, um, in charge of the security of the scrolls. Jairus would have been a respected man in his community. He was probably a dignified man because of his position in the synagogue. He would not be the guy who at parties was running around with the lampshade on his head. Okay, he would have been, he would have been dignified. He would not have been given probably to extreme emotional outbursts. But on this day, there's something different about this man. The man that we just described, a dignified man, a ruler in the synagogue. Verse 22 says, he came and fell down before him. This would not have been an action that we would typically see from a man in Jerry's position. As leader of the local synagogue, it's also possible, we don't know, it's possible that Jairus was a proud man. It's possible that he was an arrogant man because of his position. It's possible he was a boastful man. Power does corrupt. Power corrupts people. So it's possible all these character traits were evident in him. Perhaps he was like the Pharisee who uh, got down to pray and said, I thank you, God, that I'm not a sinner like everyone else. Perhaps this was the kind of attitude Jairus had. But on this day, he's none of these. On this day, as he comes and falls before Jesus, he's a broken man. He's a humble man. He's a desperate man. A man who realizes how helpless he is. A man who realizes how powerless he is. And how much he needs the touch of the master. His power, his position, his status in this moment are completely useless to him. The Bible says he came and fell down before him. He might have been used to people bowing before him. 
And now here he is, bowing low before Jesus. He came and fell down before him. What position did that put Jairus in? Put him squarely right at the feet of Jesus. Right at the feet of Jesus. Who do we find at Jesus' feet? We don't find the proud there. We don't find the arrogant there. We don't find the boastful there. We find the humble. We find the broken. In this case, we find a desperate father at the feet of Jesus. You will find a grieving mother at the feet of Jesus. Mark 7.25 says, A woman came to him whose little girl was possessed by an evil spirit. She had heard about Jesus, and now she came and fell at his feet. She begged him to release her child from the demon's control. You'll find a sinful woman at the feet of Jesus. Luke 7.37 says, A certain immoral woman heard he was there, brought a beautiful jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. At the feet of Jesus, you'll find a bereaved sister. John 11.32 says, When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell down at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. We find the broken. We find the humble. We find the grieving at the feet of Jesus. But you know, the feet of Jesus is not just a place for those in a desperate situation. The feet of Jesus is for all of us. The feet of Jesus is a place for a seeker of truth. The feet of Jesus is a place for a worshiper. The feet of Jesus is a place for anyone seeking relationship with him. The feet of Jesus is a place of relationship. We used to sing a song. I was just a young boy when we sang it. Now, I'm running out of people in this church that I can compare myself to and still consider myself young. So, I was a younger person than I am now. Most of you probably never even heard this song. It was called Sitting at the Feet of Jesus. How many know that song? Very few. That's Okay, that's fine. But the song says, Sitting at the feet of Jesus, Oh, what words I hear him say. Happy place, so near, so precious. May it find me there each day. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, I would look upon the past. For his love has been so gracious, it has won my heart at last. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, where can mortal be more blessed? There I lay my sins and sorrows, and when weary, find sweet rest. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, there I love to weep and pray, while I from his fullness gather grace and comfort every day. I like the phrase every day. That's how often we need to be at the feet of Jesus. As children of his, as worshipers, as seekers of truth, every day we need to position ourselves at the feet of Jesus. The whole song speaks of relationship. When we have this kind of relationship with Jesus Christ, we don't have to run from somewhere else and fall at his feet like Jairus did in the time of trouble because we're already there. In Psalms 91, verse 1 and 2, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge, my fortress, my God, in Him will I trust. When we dwell somewhere, it's the place where we live. It's the place where we're at. It's the place where we can be found. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High, those who dwell at the feet of Jesus, that's where you can find us. It's not a place that's foreign to us. It's not a place that's uncomfortable to us. It's not a place that's unfamiliar. It's not a place we don't recognize. At least it shouldn't be. The feet of Jesus should never become a place we're unfamiliar with or uncomfortable with. I remember once in my life, hugging your parents should not be something you're unfamiliar with or uncomfortable with either. But there was a time in my life where that's how it was for me. 
I always, I hugged and kissed my parents goodnight before I'd go to bed. And then I think I did that till I was probably 14. And then I just got too old for that stuff. So I probably went 20 years without even ever hugging my parents. And I was, now I was, of, now let me be clear, they didn't stop. We were not an affectionate, overly expressive, affectionate kind of family, okay? It was like, I knew they loved me, they knew I loved them, good enough. And that's kind of how I felt, you know. Well, they know I love them, that's good enough. I don't need to show it, I don't need to express it. I think I was 35 years old, I was married, so this is about 21 years. I'm 35 years old, I'm married, I've got two children of my own. And I begin to think about that, and it just didn't seem right to me. And I begin to think, you know, it's not good enough that they know it. They need to be shown it. They need to feel from me that I love them, not just assume that I do, not just even know that I do. I need to show them, you know, by this manner that I love them. And, and, and not to be morbid, but one thing that really, really struck me in that case was if life followed the natural course, I was going to come to a point where I had to say goodbye to both of my parents. And I would be standing there looking down into a casket and saying my goodbyes. And I thought, you know, in that moment, there's going to be so much to deal with. There's going to be grief. There's going to be sorrow. There's going to be the sense of loss. The thought that come to me was the one thing I'm not going to deal with is guilt and regret over things not spoken, over words not said, over actions not taken. So I decided, okay, I'm going to start hugging my parents. I moved out of the house when I was 22. Virtually every Sunday after church, they lived right on top of the hill here, I would go up and spend Sunday afternoon with my parents. After, when I was 22 years old. After I got married, we went and spent Sunday with my parents. After my kids were born, we went and spent Sunday with my parents. I could probably count on one hand each year the Sundays that I didn't go up and see my parents on a Sunday afternoon. I mean, of course, there were vacations. There was time I was sick. I might have been gone for work. But we spent most of our Sundays up there. I'm going to start hugging my parents. Worst, most uncomfortable thing I ever tried to do in my life. <laughs> to just reach out and give two people a hug. I just, I couldn't do it. it. It was so hard. I'd struggle so bad. And, and it was so difficult just to reach out and hug them and to say, I love you. It just, it was so uncomfortable. I just didn't even want to do it at all. I remember, can you help me for a minute? I don't have to hug you. No, you do not. <laughs> Real hug is optional. I was outside, this really happened. I was outside with my dad. I was helping him do something. And I said, well, I guess I'm going to go. And in my mind, I'm thinking, all right, you're leaving, hug him. Well, I'm going now. And he says, okay. And I just stood there. That's about what he did, too. He jingling his keys. Probably. <laughs> well, I'm going to go. Looks like you're going to have to cut the grass here this week sometime. And we talked a little bit. Well, I'm going to go. Boy, that corn sure looks good over there in that field, doesn't it? <laughs> Well, I guess I'll be leaving now. I'm literally 18 inches away from him. And I brought up another topic of conversation because I didn't want to reach out and give him. And we're standing here talking like this. And finally, I got it. I just could I finally reached out and did a quick, you know. And I got in the car. Thank you. I got in the car and left. That really happened. It was so awkward and so uncomfortable for me to do that. But I kept at it. And within about six months, it was just the most natural thing I'd ever done in my life. It became familiar to me again, okay? It, it became a place I was comfortable with. It became a thing I wanted to do. In fact, I, it was, 
oh, I don't remember what time of year that was. It was Labor Day weekend. My dad always liked to go to a tractor pull up in Ridgeland. And he was going to leave for the tractor pull. And here he is going around to my mom and my wife and me and my kids. Big hug, love you, love you, love you. You know, it did have an impact. And it became familiar to us. The last thing I said to my dad, you know, on his deathbed was, I love you. And he said, I love you too. You know, we got to that point where we could say that comfortably. And it didn't feel awkward, and it didn't feel uncomfortable. The feet of Jesus should never be a place for a Christian that's uncomfortable. Amen? It needs to be a comfortable place. It needs to be a familiar place to us. And this is where we find Jairus at this time. Jairus come and fell at his feet. Verse 23, pleading with him to heal his little daughter. She's about to die, he said in desperation. Now even... For myself, if I spent every waking moment at the feet of Jesus, I think this situation would devastate me. You know, it, it, the thought of losing a child, I, I can't think of anything more horrible, I don't think, than the thought of losing a child. Just, just the thought of it is horrific. I don't even like to think about it, much less to be faced with it. I've never been faced with it. I've never come close to being faced with it. It's got to be a horrible situation. And, and look at the words he used. He calls her his little daughter. You know, that, that's almost a turn. Not just my daughter, my little daughter, my little girl. Think about the ache in that father's heart right here, where he thinks his child is going to die. We know from the passage here and from Luke 8 that the girl is only 12 years old. We also know that it's his only child. His only child. This probably only adds to his desperation. The thought that his only child might be dying. She's precious to him. He says she's about to die. Please come and place your hands on her. Heal her so she can live. Now this again would have been quite an unlikely statement from a person in Jerry's position as a ruler of the synagogue. The majority of the religious leaders of the day would want nothing to do with Jesus. They, they didn't ascribe to his teachings. They tried to trick him and get him to say things, you know, so they could accuse him of things he hadn't done. They even plotted to kill him. Yet here comes Jairus with this great statement of faith. Please come. Please lay your hands on my daughter so that she'll recover, so that she'll live. Where did this come from? Obviously, Jairus was aware of Jesus, was aware of the things Jesus had done, was aware of what Jesus was capable of. Was he just the exception to the rule? Was he a Jewish leader who believed in Jesus Christ and followed him? Or was he just so desperate and so at the end of his rope in this situation that he was willing to try anything? We don't know. Could have been either situation. Verse 24 says, Jesus went with him and the crowd thronged behind. Finally, some relief for Jarius maybe in this situation. He went and found Jesus. He gets Jesus' attention. He gets him to come home with him. Now everything is going to be okay. Jesus is going to come. He's going to lay hands on my daughter. He's going to heal her. We can get on with our lives. Everyone's going to be great. And then this woman comes along and has to throw herself into the situation and mess the whole thing up for Jarius. That stopped the procession. It stopped in his mind what Jesus was going to do for him. Verse 25 and 26. It says, There was a woman in the crowd who had a hemorrhage for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors through the years, had spent everything she had to pay them, but she had gotten no better. In fact, she was worse. Now let's paint a picture of this woman. A hemorrhage for 12 years. First of all, physically, this woman was in horrible shape. Usually, uh, a loss of blood will lead to a condition called anemia. She more than likely was suffering from that. Depending on the degree of the affliction, anemia can also bring with it dizziness. 
can bring nauseousness, can bring fatigue, can bring shortness of breath. Vital organs like the heart don't get the oxygen they need, um, the oxygen that's required. So she's physically, she's just a mess. She's probably malnourished, probably underweight, weak, pale, just, just a total mess physically. But as bad as her physical condition was, her emotional condition would have been so much worse. Because of the hemorrhage, number one, she was considered unclean. By Jewish custom and Jewish law, she would have been considered ceremonially unclean. Now, what does that mean? It means she wouldn't have been allowed to go to the temple. It means she wouldn't have been allowed to go into the synagogue. It means anything that she touched would also become unclean. The bed where she lay on at night was unclean. The chair where she sat to rest was unclean. The table where she sat to eat her meal was unclean. Anything she touched, any utensils she used, any dishes she used, the broom she used to sweep the house would have been considered unclean. Anything this woman touched was unclean. Anything she touched was unclean. Also, anyone she touched would have been considered unclean. Think about the ramifications of that in this woman's life or in any person's life. She probably at one time had a husband who, because of this condition, most likely had divorced her by now and moved on and left her, you know, just to deal with it on her own because of her unclean condition. She was an outcast in her neighborhood. She might as well have been a leper for all the human contact she probably had. She might as well have been a leper. She was probably lonely. She was rejected. She felt ashamed. She had no human contact. Think about it. No kiss, no hug, not even a handshake. No human contact whatsoever. Worst case scenario, maybe there wasn't even anyone in the neighborhood that would show her enough compassion to stand out in the street and talk to her from a distance. Maybe she didn't even have that in her life. She just had nothing. It's a devastating picture of a human life. Verse 26 says she had spent everything she had to pay them, that being the doctors, but it got no better. In fact, she was worse. They were more than willing to take her money, but they couldn't do nothing for her. She'd spent everything she had. She probably couldn't even buy the food she needed to even try to sustain what strength she had left. She spent everything. How many know if you spend everything, what do you have left? Nothing. This woman had nothing. She was broken mentally. She was broken physically. She's broken financially. She was exhausted in every way possible. She's poured out in every way possible. She's bankrupt in every way possible. And yet somehow, in the midst of her physical condition, in the midst of her emotional condition, somehow, some way, there remained in her a little spark of faith. A spark of faith remained in her. She was wasted with disease and despair, but she was energized with hope. Something kept that flame alive in her, that faith alive in her. Verse 27 says, She had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd, touched the fringe of, her ro of his robe. Now she hadn't, she wouldn't have had because of her condition, she wouldn't have the opportunity to go out and see Jesus. She wouldn't be able to go out and hear his messages. She didn't get a chance to meet him. She couldn't go to the marketplace probably and speak to her friends about him, people who had seen him and seen the things he'd done. She hadn't witnessed any of that on her own, but she had heard about Jesus. Somehow she heard about him and she knew he was the answer. So she came up behind him through the crowd, touched the fringe of his robe. This was miraculous in, in itself. Read the picture that builds here from verse 21. It says, a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. Verse 24 says, Jesus went with him, that being Jairus, and the crowd thronged behind. The word thronged here means to compress, to crowd on all sides. One translation says the crowds almost crushed him. 
So great was this mass of people. I mean, you ever been to the state fair on a Labor Day? Stand up by the food building and look downhill at that road, and all you see is it doesn't look like you could even walk through there. And these people are being orderly and decent, just you know, trying to move both directions. This was just not a mob, but just, just a mass of people just, just worked up and in a frenzy, maybe trying to get at Jesus to speak to him, maybe to touch him. I don't know what they were doing there. But there's just this mob of people around pushing and shoving and pressing in on Jesus. And she came up behind him. There was no way through or over this crowd. There was no way under this crowd. There was no way around this crowd. She had to go through the crowd. So she gets behind him in her weakened state, in her physical condition, spiritually, emotionally, bankrupt in every way, dizzy, fatigued, short of breath. She begins to make her way through the crowd. How did she do that? How? With, with what little strength she had left, she gets in there and she begins to pull and she begins to push and she begins to get an elbow in somebody's ribs and push them aside. And she eventually finds herself right up behind Jesus and she reaches out and touches the fringe of her robe. Tell you what, if you get a person that really recognizes their need for the touch of Jesus and decides they want that touch, do not get in their way. You're going to have some old lady footprints on your back if you get in the way of that. Something inside of her pushed her on with every last bit of strength. She pushed her way through this crowd till she finds herself right behind Jesus. She touched the fringe of his robe. Where's the fringe of a robe? At the bottom. Where do we find this woman? At the feet of Jesus. The same place we find Jairus when he comes and asks for help for his little girl. We find her at the feet of Jesus. If I can just touch him, I'll be whole. I'll be healed. What a statement of faith. What a demonstration of faith. If I can just touch she, As I said, she hadn't seen him. She hadn't met him. She just heard about him. But what a statement of faith. If I can just touch the hem of his clothing, the hem of his garment. It's another song we used to sing. She's going to be made whole. That statement of faith is on par with the statement of the leper, Matthew 8, 2 said, suddenly a man with leprosy approached Jesus. He knelt before him, worshiping. Lord, the man said, if you want to, you can make me well again. What a statement of faith. The woman's statement is on par with the blind man in Matthew 9, 27. It says, two blind men followed behind Jesus, shouting, Son of David, have mercy on us. They went right into the house where he was staying, and Jesus asked them, do you believe I can make you see? Yes, Lord, they told him, we do. Her statement of faith is on par with the Roman centurion, Matthew 8, 10. He had a servant who was sick, and Jesus said, I'll come with you and heal him. The centurion says, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come into my home. Just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed. I don't even need you to come, Lord, and put your hands on him and pray for him. Just say the word from where you are. What faith. What a statement of faith. And this woman's statement of faith, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. What a great statement of faith. Verse 29 says, immediately the bleeding stopped and she could feel that she had been healed. She could feel it. She didn't just sense it. You know, something in her spirit told her she'd been healed. She could feel it. The bleeding had stopped. What happened in that moment? I think the dizziness went away. I think the fatigue was gone. 
I think the shortness of breath was gone. The anemia was gone. I think her blood was restored at that moment, at the moment of that touch. I think her blood was restored to the level it needed to be at. The nauseousness was gone. The vital organs were getting oxygen again like they were supposed to. It wasn't just the blood that dried up. I think this healing touched every area, touched not only the disease, but touched every symptom that went along with the disease. They were all gone. For the first time in 12 years, no symptoms. Verse 30, Jesus realized that once the healing power had gone out from him. So he turned around the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, all this crowd is pressing around you. How can you ask who touched me? But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came, fell at his feet, and told him what she had done. Verse 32 says he kept looking around to see who had done it. In Luke 8, 46, in the account of this story, Jesus says, they say, how can you say, this crowd is pressing you all around on every side. How can you say, who touched me? In the book of Luke, Jesus says, someone deliberately touched me. Jesus had been touched all day. Poked, prodded, jostled, run into. He'd been touched all day long. But he said, someone, not just people being pushed in the crowd and the milling of the crowd, someone deliberately touched me. Amen. We need to reach out and deliberately touch Jesus, don't we? She deliberately touched him. One touch was different than he experienced that day. One touch had purpose. One touch had meaning. One touch had a woman's great faith attached to it. Someone deliberately touched me. Now, remember, by law, the touch of this woman would have made Jesus unclean. But by her faith, her touch made her whole. By grace and by love, she was made whole because of her touch. Jesus wasn't worried about being unclean. He just wanted to touch. He wanted to minister. He wanted to heal. Her faith. He should have been unclean, but she was made whole because of her touch. Verse 34, he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. You've been healed. She's been physically healed. She's been spiritually healed. She's been healed in every way you can be healed. Go your way. Your faith has made you whole. Now all this time this is going on, Jerry is to stand there watching this, and I'm guessing by now he's about ready to blow a gasket. He's probably had enough, okay? He had everything worked out. He had Jesus ready to come to his house, ready to come heal his daughter, and this woman gets in the way, and now there's a delay. What's going on here? Why did she have to show up now? I wouldn't doubt he was angry. I wouldn't doubt he was frustrated. I wouldn't doubt maybe he um, sunk to a new level of hopelessness because of the delay. He knew how sick his daughter was, and now Jesus is delayed because he's dealing with this woman. I probably thought, why couldn't she just show up after my daughter was healed? Why couldn't she have come to see Jesus yesterday? Why couldn't she have come and touch Jesus tomorrow? Why is Jesus looking around in this mass of people trying to find this one person? Why? I have a need. I need you right now. Why are you messing around with other people? The woman's telling her story of what happened. He's probably thinking, why can't she just get to the point? Why can't she just say what happened, move on, so we can get to my house? Verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking to her, messengers arrived from Jairus' home with the message, your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the master now. A horrible situation just got horribly worse. At least when there was life there, there was hope in Jairus that Jesus would get there in time. He's had hope. He believed, by what we read here, that Jesus could touch her and heal her. doesn't say that he believed he could raise her from the dead. Okay? Maybe that thought never crossed his mind. Well, it's okay, because Jesus can raise her anyway. 
maybe all, maybe all the greater, maybe all the expanse of his faith was, was that Jesus can heal, but can't raise from the dead. What a crushing moment this might be. All his hope suddenly, your daughter's dead. All his hope is extinguished by those few words, your daughter is dead. Everything's gone. His only daughter, his little girl, who only got 12 years, is gone. And nothing on the face of the earth is going to bring her back. Can you imagine the emptiness he must have felt in that moment? Can you imagine the desperation that he must have felt in that moment? It must have been horrible. Verse 36, Jesus ignored their comments. Aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't move and doesn't work based on the comments and the thoughts of man? Aren't you glad that Jesus ignores what people try and speak into your life sometimes? It's necessary. He ignored their comments. He says to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just trust me. He speaks words of comfort to him. He speaks words of hope to him. The scope of this thing might have changed. It might be a little more serious now than it seemed before. But don't be afraid. Don't worry. Just trust me. Everything's going to be all right. In verse 40, they'd arrived at his house. It says, Jesus took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. Holding her hand, he said to her, get up, little girl. And the girl, who was 12 years old, immediately stood up and walked around. Now again, we spoke about the unclean touch, how Jesus would have been made unclean by Jewish law from the woman with the hemorrhage touching him. Same situation here. This little girl's dead. Jesus, by law, reaching out and touching her would have made himself unclean. But he wasn't worried about that. He reached out, took her hand, and brought her back to life. I think this is a beautiful picture. Jesus reaching out and touching this dead girl, taking her by the hand, made himself unclean to heal her. But he said, arise, little girl, get up. And by his touch, she was made whole. I think it's a beautiful picture of how Jesus himself would touch sin and death as he hung on the cross and as he died there. And then as he was resurrected again, three days later, victorious over sin, over death. What a picture here, Jesus taking that girl's hand and saying, arise. He wasn't worried about being unclean. He wasn't worried about any of that. He just wanted to minister. Wanted to bring hope to a father. Wanted to bring life to a little girl. That's what the touch of the master does. That's what the touch of Jesus does. So we have two very different people here. One was a leader in the synagogue. One was considered a nobody, probably by society. One was influential and well-to-do. One was broke, sick, socially outcast. We have two desperate situations. One has been suffering for 12 years with our affliction. One is 12 years old and at the point of death. For both, there is no human remedy that can change the course of their lives. But Jairus and the woman both had faith. They both had faith. I don't know where the faith come from. I don't know how they maintained the faith in the situations they were in, but they both had faith. Even in the midst of their situation, they both knew what the solution of their problem was. Mark, would you come this morning? They knew that a touch of the master, however that touch took place, whatever the method of connection was with the master to get that touch, they knew that that touch was the key. Whether it was them reaching out to him or if it was him reaching out to them, they knew that the touch of the master was the key. Jesus in his love and his fairness and his impartiality, he didn't look at the condition of each of the people he was dealing with. He didn't rebuke Jairus because of his position as a leader in the synagogue, nor did he despise the woman because of her poverty. 
He just rewards their faith. To one, he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. You've been healed. To another, he says, don't be afraid. Just trust me. Just trust me. The touch of the master. Just one touch this morning. Whatever we face, whatever we're going through, just one touch of the master is all it takes to change a life. Be it a touch of salvation, be it a touch of healing, a touch of mercy, a touch of grace. Unfortunately, sometimes the touch we need is one of peace because we're in the midst of a raging storm. Unfortunately, sometimes the touch we need is comfort because we've experienced a loss. I mean, thank God, peace and comfort are there in those times. But sometimes we do need that kind of a touch. But whatever you need this morning, one touch of the master. This is all this woman needed was one touch. All Jarius needed for his daughter was one touch. That's all we need this morning. Whatever you face, whatever you're going through, just one touch. And you're never the same. A woman in faith reaches out to Jesus, and she's never the same. A desperate dad asks Jesus to come touch his daughter. She's raised to life again. One touch can change everything. Any of you ever heard that song about the blind man? I just love that song. It paints such a wonderful picture of the touch of Jesus Christ in a person's life. The song says in the first verse, it says I was, it's a guy describing you know, himself being at work. He says, I was working in town one afternoon, attending some business affairs. I heard a commotion a couple streets over and wondered what's happening there. A young man came running from in that direction, and he stopped just to catch his breath. I asked him to please tell me what was the hurry. He smiled up at me and he said, I was trying to catch the crippled man. Did he run past this way? He was rushing home to tell everyone what Jesus did today. And the mute man was telling myself and the deaf girl he's leaving to answer God's call. I know it's hard to believe, but if you don't trust me, ask the blind man. He saw it all. Amen. At the touch of Jesus Christ, the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf can hear, the mute talk. That's what the touch of Jesus Christ does in a person's life. That's the physical part. The second verse says, my friend, if the troubles and burdens you carry are heavy and dragging you down. You've tried everything you can possibly think of. There's no relief to be found. That very same Jesus that altered the future of the blind man, the deaf, and the lame is still reaching out in your hour of trouble. One touch, and you're never the same. Amen. One touch from the master, you're never the same. One touch from the master, and your life is impacted. Your life is changed. Your life is revolutionized just by one touch from the master. So put yourselves today, we talked about being at the feet of Jesus. I'd just like to encourage you today, put yourselves in a position. If you're in a point where you need that touch, or if you're in a point where you just want relationship, put yourself in that position of being at the feet of Jesus. Amen? Put yourself in that position. Live at his feet. That's relationship. Live in relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ so he can touch you, but also so you can reach out and touch him. There's no situation you're experiencing today or someone you know is going through. There's no situation in your life that Jesus can't touch. There's no situation that Jesus can't change. There's nothing that's lost that he can't restore. Do you believe that today? Yes. Amen. Would you stand with me? Father, we just thank you right now. Yes. 
Oh, God, we thank you for your touch, Lord God. I just pray right now for every person in this house, Lord, those things that they brought before you and laid before you and spoke before you as we sang, Lord God, that moment they spent at your feet, Lord Jesus, I just pray that you would move in each situation, Lord God. I pray that you would reach down and touch each individual life, Lord God. I pray that each one of us, Lord God, just that one touch from you, Lord God, would send them forth from this place, Lord God, would send them forward in their lives, Lord God, impacted, changed, and renewed, Lord Jesus. We thank you for that touch. We ask that you would help us, Lord, to be diligent, to spend time at your feet, Lord God, that we would dwell there, that we would live there, Lord Jesus, that we would, whatever place any of us are at in the relationship, I just pray that we would strengthen those bands, Lord God, by spending time at your feet, Lord Jesus. We thank you for it, Lord. We give you praise this morning in Jesus' name. All the people said amen. 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 You're dismissed this morning. Amen.